Are you ready? Hey everybody! Hey folks! Hello everybody! People in the back! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Welcome everybody! Welcome to the inner loop! Without further ado! Without further ado! Okay, so without further ado, we're gonna get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're, we're gonna get started. <laughs> Welcome to the Interloop Radio. I'm Rachel Kuntz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. The Interloop Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and many other streaming sites. If there is somewhere you'd like to hear the Interloop Radio where it isn't currently available, shoot us an email at theinterlooplit at gmail.com. On today's episode, we have an exciting hour of local literature planned for you. But first, for those of you who don't know, The Inner Loop is a literary reading series for writers in the D.C. area to come and read their own work each month. Writers' experience varies from the absolute beginner to Pulitzer Prize winners, and they range in genre from poetry to fiction to nonfiction. And on The Inner Loop Radio, we like to give our listeners a sampling of some of those authors who read at our events, as well as going further in depth on the writing experience and discussing relevant topics to the writing life. This month, we're going to take those summer vacations and help you turn them into art. Let's discuss travel as inspiration for writing, whether it be travel writing per se, essays on travel experiences, or fiction based in exotic places. Mm. What is an exotic place? What makes a place exotic? Anything outside of DC is looking exotic <laughs> to me at this point. <laughs> Agreed. I have not had a summer vacation. I don't know about you. Uh, I wouldn't call it one, no. Uh, just hustling. <laughs> really, really hustling this summer. It's, yes. So we're very envious of you listeners and your vacations. Absolutely. I, I will say, though, um, I do find, and I don't know if it's just the heightened sense of, you know, all your senses kind of at, at awareness when you're in a new environment um, or, or what, but I find that when I am traveling, and especially so when I'm somewhere for an extended period of time, the creative juices just start flowing. I'm like, why isn't this happening normally? Like, is that okay? This is good. This is good. Cause I think we have different experiences because when I'm traveling, I feel like all of my senses are on fire, but I'm so busy experiencing that I can't really like take notes or I don't right. know what kind of notes to take. Like when I was writing this episode with our intern, Nia Jacobs, thank you, Nia. Um, she was asking about this question and I was like, that is such a brilliant question because I have this problem all the time. How do you take notes? How do you capture what you're feeling? Because, you know, often when you pull out your journal and you're like, okay, I want to take notes about what I've experienced today. You'll be like, okay, I walked along the zine and, you know, there were big fluffy white clouds and, you know, or, you know, I'm in London and it was an unusually beautiful day, whatever. <laughs> or you write down like bullet points of what you did that day, or maybe you write down a few like adjectives, um, but it doesn't capture what you felt, what you were feeling in that moment and what, and what you're feeling is new. So it's hard to describe. So how do you 
capture that quickly in notes and then still continue experiencing what you're experiencing? Sure. Um, well, and I mean, I can't speak for everyone. I know that for me, the process is multi-part, right? So you're having the experience. You don't want to take away from that. You don't right. want to be like walking around with your hand exactly. in your notebook and, and not actually being present in the moment. Um, I do when I travel, I make myself take a fresh notebook uh, mm. every time. And at the end of each day, write down, you know, in actual prose form. So I don't allow bullets. Mm. I say, okay, I'm going to write at least a page, which often it's multiple. Yeah, it becomes more because you get into it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. About what happened today. Um, The second part of that is we have photos, right? Like so readily Mm -hmm. available now. Um, So again, I try not to take too many, but if there's something unusual or... Inspiring. Yeah, or something that's going to peak my memory when I'm trying to reflect back... I'll take note of that. I also collect objects. So a Mm -hmm. menu from a particular cafe or, you know, a a flower I'll press in my notebook or something. You know, those are silly traditional things. But um, no, I feel that. I feel that. And you know what? As you were talking, I was reminded of a couple of exercises that we did in graduate school. Mm -hmm. Um, One was where we took a postcard and we did seven minutes of pure description. So I like the idea of taking a picture of something that's particularly um, inspiring or, you know, provokes the feeling of what you're feeling during that um, day or experience. And then later you could go back to that photograph and do pure description for seven minutes and then see where that takes you. See what happens. And I'm surely it would take you back to that moment and what you were feeling. Well, sure. And maybe not. It may take you somewhere new. That's kind of the the last part of it for me. Exactly. The reflection. So you have the immediate experience, the more immediate response and and reflection. And then later, after you've returned back to wherever you return to, Mm -hmm. um, is kind of pulling out those pieces in different ways. Um, Totally. And then the other one was, um, how do you start an essay? Well, you start from something concrete, something small. Right. And all you have to do is describe that thing, that concrete thing. So if you're collecting these objects and these um, mementos uh, along the way on the trip, again, later when you're feeling like ready to write, you can use those objects to kickstart the essay. It's just start with the object. Absolutely. And I think something that we... Uh, often overburden ourselves with as writers is to um, try to pay homage to a place or a people or a culture that we really can't necessarily do so I think we need to remember not to try to overdo it and and collect everything from the experience in one piece Mm -hmm. allow yourself to dip into it slowly and and create a fuller picture over time even though that seems antithetical because with time you're distancing yourself Mm -hmm. from the actual experience um Um, this leads right into my other super important question for this (laughs) because you think about exotic places um or place just places you've never been that could be international could be domestic Mm -hmm. it could be um anything and it's only exotic because it's somewhere you've never Unfamiliar been. Unfamiliar to you, right. It's ve- That's a very personal thing. So how do, 
This is a two-part question. Uh-oh. How do you take yourself out of the prose or out of the description of this place? Mm-hmm. How do you represent the place, like, not through your own filter? Or should you even try? Right. Because it's, it is impossible. And if you're writing a personal essay, it is about you. If you're writing um, a piece of fiction, it's about the character. And it's still going to have the lens that you are coming from. I mean, you obviously one of the... Uh, you know you have to pay your dues and do the research you know when you're when you're writing a piece mm-hmm. whether it be fiction or nonfiction or what have you so that's a, that's another part of it I think that comes after or even during you know if you're actually traveling for the purpose of of travel writing mm-hmm. you've got to go prepared to dig into some totally. archives yeah you know? <laughs> and you have to do the research before you go so you right. know what you're looking at you know right what the back like what the history of this place is and not just um a, you know i'm i'm wandering and this is wandering around all the colors and the smells <laughs> which is a great experience <laughs> in and of itself but it's a very different one you know yeah so and I it's think limited it's yes. limited so i think setting intent yeah is, is a big is a big part of I it i suppose you could do the research after you come home sure but so- somewhere along the line you gotta do some research <laughs> What? <laughs> Bottom line. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, my goodness. The knowledge just flows into me <laughs> when I step into a new place. I just automatically know it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, are you traveling anytime soon? Oh, man. I mean, I'm hoping to get up to Vermont, which is... You're always going to Vermont. Yeah, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. I don't know. You know, I'm a starving artist, so if someone wants to sponsor a trip for me... <laughs> Hint, yeah. hint mm. listeners. Um, <laughs> Send a check to Courtney Sexton. <laughs> I would happily write oh, your goodness. your travel expose for you. Yeah. Um, I'm also, I don't think I'm going anywhere for a while, but um, James and I, our new goal is Austin next year, next October. Um, he's, a, he's a screenwriter, so he's going to submit a script to the contest. Yes. And then we're going to go to the film festival in Austin. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we have some writers we, from. <laughs> we, as much as we know, you guys all want to just listen to listen us to battle. us all day. <laughs> um, we try to mix it up with the writers. So let's hear um, from our writers reading at Interloop events and how they used their travel experiences to paint a picture. I was not in Bolivia to try coca the plant made famous for its use in producing cocaine and Coca-Cola. However, like most people in the country, I did chew coca leaves during my time there. Coca is as native to the Bolivian Andes as the indigenous communities that cultivate it, and varieties of it grow wild throughout the country. While I was there, I became interested in what it means to be a coca grower in northern Bolivia. I wanted to connect the leaf to the stem it grew from, the stem to the plant, the plant to the soil, and the soil to the people that till it. The variety of coca grown in Apollo, Erythroxylum coca coca, is considered the true Bolivian coca. Coca leaves have been chewed, brewed into tea, and used in ritual ceremonies since pre-Incan days. Its leaves are celebrated in art and media, on postcards in tourist shops, and in traditional music. It was my job to ask people what they considered the basic necessities of the families in their villages what every family should have and no family should have to live without, end quote. It did not occur to me that, for many, coca fits that description. Farmers in Apollo grow most of their crops for subsistence. Every family has their chakra, or crops, of plantains, yucca, and rice. 
Most have a few chickens or pigs roaming around. Though people do tend other commercial crops, in most communities, whole families depend entirely on the income from their copa. At my meetings, older farmers would take off their baseball caps and indent the tops, forming a small bowl to receive my handful of leaves. Young mothers with their babies swaddled at their backs or breasts bashfully accepted my offers of coca and lahia, a mix of ash and sugar or stevia used as a sweetener and activator. Teenaged boys who participated were teased for being still a little too young to chew with the adults. The course of any meeting was accompanied by the slow, continuous defoliating of leaf stems. Everyone had her own style. Some stacked and folded. Others nipped each leaf at the tip. Still others delicately pulled the leaf flesh from the midvein with their teeth, forming a small pile of discarded leaf entrails on the desk or bench next to them. At meetings, especially long ones, cocoa was a must. My coworker Don Ernesto once told me, you think more clearly when you have coca. Sometimes your head is cloudy or you are tired, but with coca you can think. In Bolivia, coca fuels life. It's called You Have a Car. Assume you have a car. It's blue. Get in it. You want to drive west. You start the engine. You brush your hair and apply lipstick. It's red. The brush black. Your hair blonde. You drive toward Wyoming where you will enter a town that has a name that sounds like an ancient Indian holding his hands straight up. You will blow up dust, screech to a halt outside a bar with a neon sign where you will order a Budweiser long neck. It will be frosty and cold and as you drink you will try to peel the label off in one piece. If you do, you will press its wet stickiness to the wood of the bar top. You will smile at the bartender like you have a secret only he should know. In Wyoming, you will meet a cowboy with strong hands. He will not understand you, but will touch you in all the right places. Your nipples will get hard. Your heart will feel good. The cowboy will kiss you like you want him to. His tongue will taste of whiskey and cigarettes. He'll press his crotch against yours. You'll notice his coat smells of car grease, rich dark, rich dark soil, and sex. You will feel yourself on the edge of a gigantic realization. You will know your life is changing for the better. For now, you drive toward Wyoming with a lump in your throat, with a tic-tac in your mouth, with a flask in your glove compartment. You check the rearview mirror often and see endless road, see green signs fading, see a station wagon zooming into close-up, then past you. You increase your speed, long for some sanity in this car you call your own. You put in Hank Williams. You realize he understands all of the essential problems that have ever existed in your life and his. You begin to whistle, and now you think you will drive to California. You'll meet a beautiful woman with pierced nipples who tastes of fruity bubblegum when she kisses you hard with her skinny tongue. It will flick gently like a snake against your teeth, and you will know you've fallen in love. You know she hasn't. You decide it's worth the struggle to make her into a believer, to make her see you and her as us and them. You are smoking the cigarettes you bought at the Sap Brothers truck stop near Omaha off Route 80. There you also bought tough brown cowboy boots. You find with these boots you drive faster, smile more. You know you can use these boots to your advantage in both Wyoming and California. You know they were a wise purchase, even though the man behind the counter didn't like the idea of selling tough boots to a skinny girl. 
He gave you advice, he said, to take to heart. He leaned over the counter to see what he could see down your shirt. With his hands on your breast, he said, skinny girls get themselves into trouble. You wonder where the days have gone. You wonder what hours you sleep. You wonder how you've let so much confusion into your life again. You wonder how it will end. If you will be riding a bucking bronco like the one on Wyoming's license plate, or if you will be stone still in a Nevada rest area, the sun scorching a hole through everything in sight, one brown boot propped on a fender, one hand around a growing cold mug of coffee. You wonder if the sun will be rising or setting, if your vision will be clear. You wonder if ever in your life anyone's heart has been true. If the cowboy kisses you and buys you a drink, you will ask him to dance before you leave his life. If the woman in California squeezes your nipple softly, tugs it, then says she loves you just to satisfy you for a day, you will live out one complete day of happiness, buy her breakfast, and get back into your car. Soon you'll be a blue streak flying by truckers, windshield wipers pumping. You won't remember when the rain started. You won't know if it will ever end. You're squinting forward and waving to each and every semi. Sometimes they pull on their long mournful horns. Sometimes they flash their lights. You are only lit by the scattered drops of rain, by the sad distant motel signs, by the single red ash on your drooping cigarette. You will hear a train in the distance and you will know there have been real reasons to not understand just a few things. You will know surely this is what momentum becomes. Thank you. That was Kate Heller reading nonfiction, followed by Sherry Flick reading You Have a Car from her book entitled Whiskey, Etc., published by Autumn House Press. Up next, how do you write about a trip you don't return from? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> We can't talk about travel without talking about emigration and immigration. When people or families pick up their lives and move to a new place, it's life-changing. I mean, of course it is, and and that's never a more relevant topic than, Today. than right now in, yeah. in our country, especially, and not just our country, around the world. Around the world, for sure. I yeah. mean, the refugee crisis has exactly. been going on for years now. Um, and and. You know, in places and places and with people that we don't hear about. Of you course, know, there's yeah. there's constant movement across the globe, and that's. It uh, seems like it's always a hot button issue in every country. People coming in, do they belong? Right. Should they be here? Well, and you know, humans are nomads by by nature, and and so movement is, or restricting movement is is a weird thing that is something that is new. I think in in our in this phase of existence um yeah i think so too so it becomes the experience becomes even more visceral when when we hear about it um, yeah I, it feels unnatural to to put up walls and restrict that movement yeah for well, me anyway and 
Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, we have such a rich history of waves of immigrants coming to for America. America and hearing their stories. You know, it's beautiful. Some of my favorite writers and poets have been immigrant writers. And what would we do if we didn't have their voices? Yeah, and that's what's unique about America, too, is that you can come here and still hold on to your um, background and your, your heritage. heritage. You don't have to forget about who you were just because you've come to live here and you've lived here for generations. Right. Even generations and generations later, we still talk about where our families came from and yeah, what our culture is. And it's it seems a constant quest because we are all kind of, un- well, not all of us, but many of us are, are uncertain about those past lives. Roots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the flip side, there's also people who, who don't want to talk about it. Right. Well, right. Who didn't come here willingly. Right. Yes. Or, you know, we're leaving behind a, a much worse painful situation. Or pain- yeah. yeah. And, and it's like, you know, starting anew. But that's a whole other thing to write about. And how do we communicate those experiences so that we can all understand each other a little better is, I think, the goal of anyone writing about that kind of travel, if we want to call it. <laughs> yeah, and I really do think it's the ultimate travel because mm-hmm. I think about when I'm in a foreign country and I barely speak the language and I don't know the culture and everybody's looking at me like I'm an alien uh, with three heads, you know. Um, I can't imagine moving to a place and just having that be my new reality for a while. Day in and day out, right. Until I'm like you know start to integrate with the culture and start to feel comfortable and they feel comfortable with me like i right. become a part of the community but it's a long time before that happens if you're lucky if it happens if it happens at all you know um and i think i think that you know that's kind of the experience that our writers tap into mm-hmm. when they when they use um their experience to in their writing i think they tap into that I agree. There's a, a, there's always a little part of you that feels foreign. Exactly. So let's hear it from our writers. Absolutely. So this piece is called The Suitcase, and it's about the immigrant experience, which I know firsthand, and it's not meant to be polemical, and so that's why it's not polemical. It's just kind of talking about carrying your life in the suitcase. So... Um, Everything I owned was in a suitcase. It's too vast to comprehend. A suitcase can be heavy, like your heart, or it can be too light, at least to carry a whole life. You try to find that one pair of shoes you can wear year-round, and you put that pair on so it doesn't weigh down the suitcase too much. That pair ends up being the British-made Clark's shoes, shoes you can't really buy in the U.S. in the early 1990s. Of course, that one pair, utilitarian though it might be, dubs you the girl with the weird shoes for the rest of the school year. (laughs) If that were the only weird thing about you, you would be quite lucky. It's not. Your parents too could only bring a suitcase. A suitcase cannot hold furniture. Your home becomes a collage of clashes, a very weird modern art piece. You end up collecting whatever you find abandoned in trash heaps, on the side of the road, a hand-me-down. The kindness of strangers is spoken about reverently in hushed tones through the various objects in your apartment. A gutted giant stereo, or perhaps it's mono, speaker, becomes the bench you sit on. A couch cushion becomes your floor bed. 
The table is foldable, the chairs are foldable, everything is compact and compactable, probably even compostable. <laughs> everything is transient, ready to be picked up and moved whenever it needs to go. And every object that you are required to own becomes fraught and imbued with meaning. In school, the teacher states you are required to purchase a binder. You're not even sure what that is, but you're sure your parents can't afford to get it for you because everything they own came from a suitcase, remember? When they buy you a McDonald's dollar burger, you keep the paper it came wrapped in for a little bit, not because you want to recall the not terribly tasty experience, but because you know that your parents thought really hard about how to spend the money they probably needed for much more important things. All the dishes in your house are mismatched. Not a single cup or plate has a mate. School becomes the place you go, to uh, you go to be made fun of. At a certain point, it doesn't even bother you anymore. At first, you eat sandwiches consisting of hot dogs and mayo. Once you discover that hot dogs are only supposed to be eaten in buns, you attempt a peanut butter and jelly sandwich so, you know, you can eat your lunch in peace. This is what it looks like to be an immigrant, or at least this is what it looked like for an impossibly awkward 13-year-old me. Mismatched, belonging, fitting, proper, part of a set, words that don't seem to mean much, or maybe they mean too much. Like the objects in your apartment, not your home really, you're impossibly out of place and mismatched. Sometimes you're quirky, quirky but mostly you're weird. You will never again be part of much of a set. The only order and sense will reside in your memories, precariously sewn together from the patchwork of experiences past and present. Thank you. I exit the sugar house. The hinges on the front door screech as the door swings shut, sealing me inside. I waste no time. I begin inspecting the tap on the evaporator, jostling the handle, making sure that the flow of syrup is steady. I move to the front of the sugar house where the plastic tubes carrying sap from outside originate. I follow the tubes, winding my way around the workbench and the evaporator and mason jars of finished syrup, past the circuit breaker that connects to the electrical generator outside, which powers the refinery process. I settle at the back of the sugar house next to a door that I assume leads to the utility room. I lean against the wall and survey the sugar house. Everything appears to be in order, safe. Something is askew though. I hear rustling and the patter of feet against wood. This time of year, field mice tend to seek shelter wherever they can find it. But then I hear something else. It's humming, a lullaby. I push myself away from the wall. My forehead creases into a wrinkled, nonplussed expression. Soon I find myself compelled by some force beyond my own volition, reaching for the doorknob. It's locked. I test the floorboards with the bottom of my Birkenstocks, and nothing happens. I spin around, determined to find the key. Finally, I examine the door, door frame, following along the sides, and then resting my gaze above the door. I press my body against the door and get on my tiptoes. I run my hand along the top of the door frame. A splinter pricks my index finger before Eureka, I sense the cool metal grooves of the key. I carefully insert the key into the knob. Before I open the door, I hesitate, wondering if I truly wish to find what's on the other side. As it has countless times in myriad situations throughout the millennia of human history, curiosity prevails. I cautiously open the door to the utility room. At first, I see only black. I step inside, leaving the door to the refinery open a crack. When I turn to the left, I discover a faint glow 30 or so feet from the doorway. 
There, below a small loft crafted from beams of maple wood, I spot two sets of eyes. The pupils are dilated. They gaze back at me, unblinking. One of the sets of eyes disappears. A swift thunking sound, feet stomping across the floorboards, disrupts the silence. Hijo, espera, ven aquí ahora mismo, a shrill, shrill woman's voice beckons from the glowing lamp below the loft. Apurate, no sabes quién está ahí afuera. So she's telling, telling her son to stop and come back. You don't know who's out there. Right then, a thin streak of light from the refinery room grazes the cheeks of a small boy. He's no more than four years old. He pauses at my feet, looking up with beaded eyes that seem to be lost in a world of their own. A tremor shoots up my spine and ripples through my brain tissue. Along my arm, hair follicles stand on end. You shouldn't be here, I think. The woman scrambles from the corner of the room, thrusting herself toward the young boy. She grabs the boy's arm and shakes it, imploring him to stand still. The boy's eyes water, and he begins to cry. The woman scolds and shushes him until he quiets. She sighs, then looks to me. She can't be much older than me, 20 or 21, maybe. Her face says something I can't translate. It's a secret language, which can only be understood by those who have suffered the utmost grief and despair. Hello, the woman says quietly, her lips going limp. You're a friend of Mr. Timmons, she asks. I, th I think so, I say. He and my dad, they're very close. She purses her lips and nods. It's cold upstairs, she says, glancing at the loft. We need more blankets, and the light, it goes off. Tell him, please. I note the expression in her eyes. It's calm, yet with the stillness of heightened urgency. I don't know, I stammer. I mean, I don't know what he'll say. I can ask him, but I don't know. She says nothing. She merely turns and leads her son back to the corner. I remain next to the doorway to the refinery room, alone. Again, my body moves back through the doorway. My hand is attached from my mind as it grasps the knob and pulls the door shut, using the key to lock it. I return the key to its original provenance atop the doorframe. I survey the room, the meandering tubes, and the imposing evaporator. Otherwise, the room is empty. Professor Timmons and my dad are still outside. I inhale a swift breath of air, realizing that I haven't breathed since exiting the utility room. When is it that we lose our innocence? I begin to think of the unforeseen events that can stop the trajectory of our lives and force us in a different direction. A first love, a hospital stay, the death of a close family member or friend. It's a shorter list than one might think. On occasion, the event is something that has no direct impact on us. Instead, it's a shift in reality, the newfound awareness that accompanies the event, causing us to realize that there is a world outside of the one we see on a daily basis. It's when we come to know the unknown, feel the unfelt, that our innocence is lost. That's called the end of the world. Blue. Work for, live for, work, life, living for work, work, life, living for life, work, a life's work, like its life. A population evicted from history, tunneling New York City, only one of many laborers, only a many of one laborer, eyes squinting at the camera's flash down the shaft. A history of eviction, Lower East to the island, or in this case, Staten Island, surfing landlords riddled with rickets, shanty Irish, well-worn term of endearment or textbook trauma, so old it's in black and white, so ingrained that it's passed on in genes to kids 
who still their voices still when phantom landlords bang on the door. So far, we haven't come from this yet. So far, haven't we? How far have we come from this? Not yet. Haven't we come so far? Yet, we have come from this. Thank you. That was Tony Taleva reading The Suitcase, Joel Goldberg reading The End of the World, and Jen Fitzgerald reading Blue. Up next, we bring in an expert on travel and writing and travel writing, Rachel Louise Snyder. Gather. Gather in. Gather around, gather around for the second half. And we're gonna get started. We're gonna get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. We've been discussing travel as inspiration, and joining us now is Rachel Louise Snyder, writer, professor, public radio commentator, and winner of many awards. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Rachel has traveled to more than 50 different countries and recently has been traveling all around the U.S. for her latest book. So what better writer to clue us in on this subject? I'm thrilled to be here. (laughs) Our resident expert. I'm actually sitting for one moment. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Breathe. Love it. Uh, Do you want to kick us off with a reading, Rachel? Yeah, so I actually decided I'd read something from my second book, which is a novel, um, because I think when people think about traveling, they don't always think about other genres that are um, useful in, you know, uh, other genres in terms of of travel writing. They think nonfiction, so Mm -hmm, I thought it would be kind of a fun place to start. Plus, it's a section that I've never read before. I didn't Mm. read it on my book tour or anything like that, so I kind of like it. So it takes place in Cambodia where I lived for six years. And um, uh, I think that's all you need to know. Sophia is a teenage girl. And um, I think you'll be caught up. So there you go. (laughs) Sophia was born in Chicago, but her parents had grown up in Cambodia. Her father's brother, her uncle Nimit, had sponsored their immigration to the United States. Sophia loved her her parents' stories from Cambodia even the ones filled with violence or death or hunger or poverty, the distant relatives who died in the genocide, Pol Pot time, as her mother called it, even the Uncle Sophia never knew who'd been killed on his bicycle delivering bales of lemongrass to the Bonkak market. She especially loved their tales about nature and spirits and palm trees. Most of the stories she heard had come from her three older cousins, they spent their weekends together lounging on Edgewater Beach and eating fish amok on Argyle Street. You know, our grandmother was like crazy, her cousin Ken told her once. Don't say that, Ken, scolded his older brother, Sit. I'm just saying, she didn't die in the Pol Pot time or anything. She died because she was crazy. Shut up, Ken. The two families met at a Vietnamese restaurant that day. The kids had a corner booth to themselves. Sophia didn't care much for fish amok, white fish and coconut milk steamed inside a banana leaf, but she loved the way it looked, and she loved coming to the city, to Argyle Street, which was more or less taken up by Vietnamese and Cambodians. 
The smell of noodle soup permeated the sidewalks, and everything from yellow candles to incense to kaffir lime leaves and dried jasmine buds was on offer. It was the closest her family got to home. I just think Sophia should know about her grandma, Ken told Sit. Tell me, she'd said. Tell me what? Sophia knew next to nothing about her grandmother. Sit buried his face in a bowl of po, a bowl of pho, sorry, slurping the noodles loudly enough to make the rest of them go silent. Sit's father glared at them from the next booth. Come on, why was she crazy? Sit glared at his brother Ken, but didn't shush him this time when he began to talk. Sophia's grandmother's husband disappeared at the height of the Cambodian genocide, as did her eldest daughter. That left her with two sons, Sophia's father, Derry, and her uncle, Namit. One day when she was walking to the creek behind their hut to wash laundry, she spotted a bloated figure in black pajamas. It was not unusual, bodies turning up. All her neighbors had stumbled upon bodies, tried to save themselves from the fates that befell others. The bodies were often not recognizable as bodies, Ken told Sophia. In the water, skin fell off like chunks of steamed fish. The bloated body in the creek had a large, darkened birthmark on the back of its neck. This mark, Ken said, stole Sophia's grandmother's mind. Who? Sophia asked. Tell me who it was. Om Chaya, Sit said. It was our father's elder sister. She disappeared long before, but her body had washed ashore, and Sophia's grandmother lost her mind after that. She began to mumble and wander the village. Once the Khmer Rouge had fallen, she shaved her head in the manner of widows and took to wearing white, the color of death. She slept little. She carried shards of glass in her sarong and would gum the smooth sides when she grew nervous. Dara was 15 when Nimit left him to care for their mother alone. He took an apprenticeship at a pharmacy and eventually learned enough to get a job at the bustling pharmacy Lagar, the busiest and most reliable pharmacy in the city. As the years went on, Nimit would call or write from the United States and want a plan for his brother's arrival with their mother. It would take money, years of paperwork, years of immigration interviews. Dara put him off, not because he did not have fantasies of what life in America might possibly offer him, but because he could not imagine the logistics of life among foreigners with a mother who had, by then, become equally foreign to him. One life could only maintain enough mystery. So I'll stop there. I won't tell you what happens to <laughs> ah! her. <laughs> so, I have, I have what so I, what many I, questions. What I, why I chose that section in a way was that it combines two places of travel, a place that I would consider home, Chicago, and a mm-hmm. place that was totally foreign to me. Um, and it plays with point of view in terms of, of um, who who's home and when and where and what that means. Mm-hmm. That point of view is exactly where all my questions lie. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I'm going to take us a break before we get into that. Stay tuned for more with Rachel Louise Snyder.
Continuing our show on travel, we're here with Rachel Louise Snyder, and she was just about to tell us about how she did this point of view switch in the story we just heard. Yeah, I mean, to me, I I wanted to give equal weight to the sense of um, Cambodia as a foreign place and Chicago as a foreign place. Um, both places are uh, cities I, I um, or countries I live. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm giving a. a equality to Cambodia and Chicago. So <laughs> the city I lived in was Phnom Penh. Um, sorry, you know, you always, you never have enough coffee on Saturday mornings. Um, <laughs> That's so true. So I, li- I li- actually lived in Phnom Penh and Chicago for almost equal amounts of time, but only one of those places felt like home to me because I understood the culture. I understood the language. I understood, mm-hmm, right. you know, um, uh, uh, how to move around the city. And so I wanted to create um, a character and have a point of view where um, there was tension between that that place that is familiar um, to her mm. parents, who, of course, grew up in Cambodia and speak Khmer, um, and to her, who grew up in Chicago and speaks English, right, with very little Khmer. And mm-hmm. I wanted there to be a tension between the idea of what home is and mm-hmm. what's familiar and what's not familiar. Um, and I didn't want to make one place seem more exotic than another, because I think to Americans, I mean, people find out I lived in Cambodia for six years, and they're, they they have like, no oh, other questions what? beyond, like, what was that like? Mm-hmm. Because it's almost, to a lot of people it's sort of incomprehensible right and I just I usually say it was hot (laughs) (laughs) it's like do you really want to know (laughs) I love this idea that you took took um, your experience and and sort of grafted it to the character or or incorporated it into the story because one of the biggest questions I have about um, writing and using travel as inspiration is how do you take yourself out of the equation? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a big struggle for writers when you're when you're writing about foreign places. How do you keep how do so you much of it is so not make it about yourself and and electric to you as it's happening. But exactly. then like how, well yeah. also yeah. in that you you're know, seeing it through this filter right. Absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you, I got, you know, those of us who lived in Cambodia for a long time got so cynical because we would see people come in, um, foreign writers or foreign journalists, and they would, um, like every story sort of started the same way, Mm -hmm. which was, Mm -hmm. you know, the people are so, so kind, Mm -hmm. but their eyes are haunted. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it just, it was like, it was so limiting to how far Cambodia had moved and and who Cambodians were really were like it 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 condensed them to these kind of mm-hmm. um, flat two dimensional uh, uh, people of sorrow mm-hmm. as if as if the country hadn't moved on and so that's one of the, that was always one of the challenges for me anywhere you know I've been I just got back from my 52nd country actually wow. um congrats my daughter who's <laughs> who's 10 has been to 22 countries wow. <laughs> yeah. so jealous. <laughs> don't don't ever let anyone tell you you can't travel with kids I just said such bullshit we are but, gonna have a conversation after this Richard. yeah <laughs> <laughs> I need to um 
but I think I think so much of it is really about listening and getting beyond whatever your casual acquaintance is with a place. So if you're mm-hmm. um, in the Honduran Islands, for example, and you know that everybody there is scuba diving and eating fish, like try to move beyond those those known things to something that is unknown, right? Because the thing that is true about all of us is that our lives are three dimensional, whether you are in Syria or Washington DC or, um, you know, Moscow. And, um, so I feel like the the biggest, you know, one of the big challenges for me, sorry, I'm free associating now, but one of the big <laughs> challenges for me as a writer <laughs> first starting out was that I was never interested in travel writing. I wasn't interested mm-hmm. in writing for, um, like the 10 best beaches for condoms. Right. First of all, I wasn't that kind of a traveler. I was definitely like interested in um, more difficult travel, right? Like to the, sure. to Tibet or something that was a place that was hard to get to or maybe hard to get into and hard to move around. That's where I was I was interested in the at least in the, the early decade of my travels. I'm getting older now, so you know, Paris is like, woo <laughs> Paris is always great. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I wasn't interested in that kind of writing and I didn't have the uh, the imagination to go beyond that. And I remember I was in Mexico and I was with traveling with my best friend Anne, still my best friend today, 30 years later. Mm-hmm. And we met this British couple, Ian and Jane. And Anne was a kind of budding amateur photographer and I had just finished grad school, my MFA in fiction. And I remember Ian saying, go bloody hell, you're a writer, you're a photographer. <laughs> Why aren't you getting your trips funded? And I was like, light bulbs oh, <laughs> <laughs> that, you know? and um and i said to him oh i'm not interested in writing about beaches and he was like well who is you know <laughs> <laughs> and it just it was like this light bulb where i was like all right i'm being limited by my own imagination mm, sure. actually my travels can filter into any kind of writing whether i'm writing poetry or fiction or maybe a business newsletter i don't know about that one but you know <laughs> <laughs> but I've found too, you know, when you have that opportunity for myself, right? So, yeah, maybe you're writing what are the you know ten best beaches story, whatever. But it gets you to that place, and then of course you can you can write whatever you want while you're there. Um, but I don't know. Sometimes you know you have time constraints and whatnot. When you're when you Rachel are going somewhere new, how do you? prepare both time-wise and kind of mentally to be in a space to be receptive to new ideas outside of what you may have already like gone in with and thinking about what you wanted to write about mm-hmm. that's a really that's a really tough question because um in some ways I don't want to prepare because I want to be surprised uh-huh. but in other ways I don't I don't want to come in and just um be brand new, right? Like have no idea. So I guess I can give one example. So, you know, I'm a mom now and, um, my daughter's 10. She was born in Bangkok, you know, she she had her first international flight at three weeks. So, um, you know, which was back home to Cambodia, 45 minutes. Um, (laughs) and I have a group of friends. We each have one daughter. Our daughters are eight, nine and 10 and we travel, we travel with them. We've brought them to Central America and, a lot of different places and um, the last place we went was Panama and so it's three families three kids and I knew I wanted to go to the Panama Canal 
you know, I just, I was like, I don't know. It seems like something you should go see. But beyond that, we didn't, we didn't have many plans and we mm-hmm. ended up in, um, this island called, I think it was called Isla Contadora. I can't, I can't, I can barely remember the name of the island, but it was very, very deserted. Like we wanted to go somewhere that was not very touristy and we're all very sort of savvy travelers. Um, this I'm including Anne in this now 30 years we've been traveling together. And so now it's her husband and daughter. And so we had read like there, there weren't many supplies on the island, but we were all sort of, cocky and our <laughs> our traveling egos are bigger than they should be and we were like it'll be fine we all travel around the world you know and um we land in this island and i kid you not there is no food on the island and we've Whoa. got three girls and we're like how are we gonna feed them oh and you know there's no cars on the island it's just golf carts and it turned out to be one of the most hilarious and ridiculous <laughs> Um, but fulfilling trips I'd ever taken. I was like, going to say hilarious you know. in the moment or yeah, after right. the fact. <laughs> oh, it was hilarious in the moment. I mean, we had, you know, one night for dinner, we had one peanut butter and jelly sandwich, <laughs> one small bag of pretzels, and one box of plain spaghetti. Dole out your rations. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Three daughters were like, you can each have a quarter of peanut uh-huh. butter and jelly sandwich, and here's four pretzels. I took a picture of this, and we're laughing. I mean, we're not going to starve to death, right? right. Like, we're just get take a plane off the island if it got that bad but right. the girls were fine you know they were like oh. great we'll eat our quarter sandwich and our seven <laughs> we go back in the ocean and what and a I way to build a sense of adventure for them totally yeah totally my daughter just wrote about it for her fourth fourth grade class and, um, <laughs> oh yeah awesome. get them started yeah young. Yep. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but so much of it is you know i think you don't plan too much you plan for those i mean i plan empty moments of time where I can just sit and talk to people you know yeah my daughter and I just got back from a trip to uh France and, and Ireland we just got back about two weeks ago and one of our most fulfilling moments was um this cafe with with this uh, Irishman this old grandpa who worked at this <laughs> cafe and my daughter wears this kind of jaunty jazz music hat like she's a like she's a jazz cat and <laughs> the guy the guy started sort of like teasing her about it and um before you know it they're doing magic together she's mm. doing a magic trick for him he's doing them for her and it just was um those are the moments that i think are so special and how you would write about that is that you would recognize the shared humanity mm. in that man but you would pull the details out of the out of this the setting and the, mm. and the sensory experience of being in Dublin. We were in Dublin, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really, it's really just like taking, taking all the, 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 the stuff that you experience with your senses and, and graphing it on the human experience. Mm. Mm, I love that. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to have us leave it there. That, that was I beautiful. Really <laughs> Excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks Thank you. so much for joining us, Rachel. Rachel's forthcoming book is called uh, No Visible Bruises. What we don't know about violence can kill us. It's coming out in May, 2019 from Bloomsbury and already won the J. Lucas Anthony Work in Progress Award from Harvard's Neiman School of Jur- Journalism and the Columbia Journalism School. So that's very exciting. I can't wait to read that um so thanks rachel yeah it's a pleasure to hear from you again rachel. thank you so much for having me up next we'll hear some travel inspired poetry 
Before we let you go, my personal favorite story about travel, the ultimate story on travel, if you will. You know it. We all know it. It's our favorite. Tell the me. Odyssey. Uh, the Odyssey. Yes. Here is one of our writer's takes on the classic tale. Wait, wait, wait. Can I tell you a quick story before we do that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I mean, tell our readers a quick story. Uh, yeah, yes, you can tell our readers <laughs> a quick story. So, in high school, uh, our, our freshman year, we all had to take a class, uh, an English lit class uh, in the spring. We had trimesters, so in the spring trimester, and it was classical and biblical backgrounds. So it was all the Greek hmm. myths and Roman mythology, yeah. and but yeah. also biblical stories. Um, and it culminated in the spring with like a May Day kind of festival. Oh. It was called Myth Day, um, and there were all kinds of like Olympiadic sort of events that we had to do with the classes divided into teams yeah but one of them was a retelling of the odyssey in in some way where is this going (laughs) so wait so my my section my class we decided to rewrite the story to the tune of american pie uh it was amazing what it was amazing can you give me a taste you Um, can't even give me a taste uh, i so i remember the one line it was like uh, i think yeah Oh God! I don't want to sing. Do it! Do it! Do it! Do it! Do it! <laughs> do it for our listeners. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was. Bye, bye, you proudly thinking guy. Kissed your honey, left for twenty, <laughs> left your only son by, or something like that. I don't know, but it was really good. <laughs> Wow, that's amazing. I actually thought you meant American Pie the movie. No, 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 no. And so I was like, what represents the pie? No, no, no. No, I like that better. Why do I remember that? I don't know. But I like it. Because the the Odyssey, it sticks with us all. We were proud. All right, let's listen. Let's listen to this this gal. (laughs) Much better than my version. Um, These are all sort of travel, thinking about travel poems. Um, and some of them are um, related to the Odyssey by Homer. So this first poem is called Odysseus Considers the Lotus Eaters. I'll admit it. I'm not a good man. I wanted to eat with them, to just once not be in charge. I wanted the sleep of peace because if I can't be with you, I don't know how to rest. You know me. I'm not a man. I'm a squirrely scavenger, quick to lay my mouth on any juice-filled morsel, any precious minute in which casual charitableness briefly borrows the features of love. Nostos. Everyone talks of the pain of being away, but what of the return? How each day I learned all the ways to say that you are gone, that you have been gone for I don't know, remember how long. Now that you're here, I don't know how to wish you well. Welcome back. You must have stories to tell. I want to hear of your pleasures, your sorrow, but it's all knots now, and I can't find the thread to follow. If this is another story 
We are both now weaving and unweaving. Tell me, are we at the beginning or end, the coming or leaving? That was Tu Wen reading her poems inspired by none other than The Odyssey. And that's our show. Join us next month for more literary insights. To find out more about us or submit to read at our next event, visit www.theinnerlooplit.com. The Inner Loop would like to thank Andrew Logan for our theme music and Jane Skinner for technical support. And we would also like to shout out our radio intern, Nia Jacobs, for slogging through all those audio logs and helping us write today's show. Yeah, girl, more power to you. <laughs> And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or any other streaming site you use. Your review could be what inspires the next person to tune in or, you know, write. Write. <laughs> or or take a trip. Travel. Or put an ad on our podcast. Ooh, I like Ooh. that one. <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy writing. Right on, Litwits.